Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry Show is on the air. Well, it's been years in the making, but finally, one of my childhood heroes and I sit down so that I can be a complete fanboy and ask him the questions that I have and I hope you have. Nolan Ryan, that great fastballer, the all-time leader in strikeouts, farmer, rancher, businessman, father, great American. Our conversation with Nolan Ryan. Just a few days ago, you turned 70 years old. Hard to believe. <laughs> Hard for me to believe. Well, My childhood hero can't be 70. Well, I never thought ever about being 70 and, and then when this, you start approaching it you're thinking boy I really don't believe I'm that old and uh, then you know you get up in the morning and you go well maybe I am so you know it's uh, you're proud to be able to uh, say that you've lived that long and, and had a good life and and I, I have the mindset that I'm looking forward to the rest of my life and and uh, uh, trying to live as long as I possibly can. But you're in town to be a pawpaw. I was telling Ramon, my producer, uh, he said, why, you know, why is he in Houston today? And uh, I said, well, his, Reed's child had an event last night. He said, he just came in to be a pawpaw? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, I try to uh, plan my trips if I have the flexibility to do it to around their events and, and go watch their games. And, and uh, now that Baseball starting up, and Jackson will be playing, and uh, will give me an opportunity to come down some more. Well, we've been. I mentioned you were seventy. Let's go back to you being a young man. Your father moves from uh, Refugio to Alvin. He's got the Houston Press, I guess. No, we were the. Uh, Houston Post. Yeah, we lived in Woodsboro. I was born in Refugio because that's where the county hospital was. And then he worked for the old Stanley Oil Company and was transferred up to uh, Alvin uh, because of the Hastings field there. And uh, then uh, there's six of us siblings, and um, my two oldest sisters were getting ready to go to college. And uh, so my dad, to put them through school, we became distributors of the Houston Post. So he had two jobs, and... That became a family venture because my brother and I, I would roll papers. My brother was old enough that he delivered. And uh, so my dad and my brother delivered the route. And, and at one time, we were throwing 1,500 papers. Wow. What kind of man was, was Lynn Nolan Ryan Sr.? Well, he was very uh, mild-mannered, uh, quiet, uh, hard worker that uh, 
certainly supported his kids and and uh, but uh, all six of them. Yeah, and let <laughs> let them uh, choose what they wanted to do. So he never put any pressure on us to play sports or do whatever. What do you think you acquired from him? The the man you. Oh, acquired? I think his work ethic and. Uh, uh, I'd like to think that, uh, well, I tell people that you don't realize that the influence that your parents have on you until later in life. And as I got older, I realized that I was very blessed with the parents I had and the influence they had on my life and, and the, uh, uh, work ethic that they gave me and, and, uh, my value system. And, and so I've gotten a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction out of watching my kids now with their children and see the values that they exhibit and uh, the work ethic they have and and to know that you've been able to pass that on uh, to the next generation and I see them doing that with their children so uh, it makes you very appreciative and I certainly was appreciative uh, for the parents I had. Martha Lee Hancock Ryan, what kind of person was she? Well, she ruled uh, the household. Uh, she didn't stand for any nonsense, uh, but she was a very caring, loving mother, and and uh, uh, and that's what she did. She had six children, and and she was a homemaker, and and uh, uh, she was kind of the uh, cornerstone of that family. And and uh, you know, it. Uh, you look back on it, and you you realized uh, what you took for granted. Uh, a lot of people didn't have that opportunity. Reading about your little league exploits, you started at nine, and by eleven, it sounds like you were in Nolan Ryan form. How much did you enjoy little league? How important was that? Well, that was a big event in my life. Uh, I used to tag along with my brother; he's seven years older than I, and he played all the sports. And so, uh, once I was big enough to tag along with them, always tagged along, thinking maybe they needed a right fielder or or somebody to to uh, play a position, and, and so I look forward to the days that I could play Little League. And in those days uh, in Texas, the Little League was the first organized sport that was available for you, so it was a, it was a big deal uh, to make a Little League team and, and uh, have a uniform and, and your cap, and you wore your cap every day of the year in the summertime. Right. I read that you started at nine. Now they start four or five years old off a of, off of T-ball. Is that too soon? Oh, you know, I don't I don't think it's too soon to play the game and, and to teach them the, the basics of uh, the game, but I think what we are seeing is there's too much influence uh, in the game on them having to make a decision what sport they want to play and, and – uh, the fact that they have a tendency to, to want them to choose one sport and play year-round. And, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, when I look back that we were very fortunate that we were able to play whatever was in season. And so uh, uh, that was a big deal. And I can remember every spring in our neighborhood, if we had a vacant lot, we built a baseball field. Sure. That's where we spent our summer days. And and nowadays, you don't see that with kids at all. You know, it's either an organized practice or, or they're not playing out baseball, football, or whatever. They're playing video games or whatever. 
I grew up in a very competitive little league where the parents were involved and we lived for little league baseball, but it wasn't the pressure and it wasn't year round and there was no select ball and there were no coaching and nobody had batting cages at their homes and, and things like that. Do you think that's bad for the game, the kids growing up nowadays with that? Well, I, I think that there's an expectation that's not realistic. And so what it does, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the kids. Uh, they miss out on just the enjoyment of playing and being kids. And if you strike out, that's okay, you know, or if you walk somebody. But uh, uh, I think that uh, the parents uh, and the adults that are involved in the game put too much pressure on a kid, and I don't think that's good at that age. They need to realize they're kids, and they they uh, need to uh, just let them play the game. And, and each one of those kids is going to develop on his own time frame, and and so you just because your kid is playing little league doesn't mean that he has the ability to be one of the best kids in the league and excel because he might not be at, at that point in his development. Coming up, what Texas school rejected Nolan Ryan, which led him to sign with the New York Mets? Plus, what did Nolan Ryan do with his first signing bonus as a 19-year-old? We're talking to Nolan Ryan about his early years in Alvin, Texas, pitching for Alvin High School. At what age were you when that passion really hit and you said, this is what I want to do with my life? Well, you know, what's interesting is is that uh, I wanted to go to college on a basketball scholarship. And basketball was my first love. Um, and so I quit playing football to, to focus on basketball when I got into the sophomore in high school. And thank goodness my baseball ability overshadowed my uh, basketball ability, or I don't know what I'd be doing today. I'd be retired from whatever it was. But uh, um, then when I got into high school and, and I hit my final growth spurt and I went out for the high school uh, varsity team as a sophomore, it was all of a sudden that I had a different arm. You know, I could always throw the ball further than uh, other kids, but I didn't necessarily in Little League and Babe Ruth throw harder than uh, four or five other kids in, in the league. And so when I went out as a sophomore, things had changed. And, and that's and I really think it was because I'd hit that final growth spurt. But I read that you struck out 15 players in a game, and I guess Murph came down from – the Mets and saw you and was very impressed and told the Mets that this was the best arm he'd ever seen. So there had to be a point at which you weren't just the best player on the team, you were the best player in the league, right? Well, Red Murph saw me for the first time as a sophomore and we were playing in the uh, Clear Creek uh, baseball tournament and I was pitching uh, and <clears throat> Red had come by and stopped to watch that game and uh, after the game, he told my high school coach, he says, that's the best arm I've ever seen. He said, I just came from a, a game over at Colt Stadium where uh, Jim Bunning, I mean, Jim Maloney and uh, Turk Farrell pitched against each other. And uh, that kid that you have pitching for you has a better arm than, than they do. Now, my coach told me that, and I'm thinking, 
you know, that doesn't sound right, you know, and, and obviously, uh, uh, I'd never met Red and I'd never been around a scout before. And so, uh, uh, I, I didn't know what to make of that. Uh, all I knew at that point in my pitching career, if you want to call it that, uh, I, all, all I knew was to throw as hard as I could for as long as I could. And, and that was my mindset all the way through high school. Who was helping you at that point? Now you got coaches and tutors and experts and all. There was nobody. Alvin had nobody that had any uh, knowledge of pitching, and there wasn't really anybody that had played professionally or anything. And so I was a small-town kid with a, which was blessed with a great arm, uh, but uh, didn't have anybody that could show me anything about my delivery or anything about throwing a breaking ball. And Red actually took an interest in me and uh, my senior year really tried to uh, a couple times help me with my breaking ball. But uh, now that I look back on that with the knowledge that I have about pitching and mechanics and, and how they're all related, uh, for me to be consistent uh, in high school uh, was a big challenge because I was inconsistent on my delivery. And so that meant that uh, the results of my pitches were going very uh, pitch to pitch. So the motion that you carried through your entire career, I mean, you can see it from start to finish, it doesn't appear to have changed. Was that developed already by the Well, I think it was uh, – I think it was a gift as as, as much as, as the arm strength that I had and the ability to throw a baseball uh, – and so I had a, a basic foundation of a delivery. I just didn't know what I needed to do. And and the interesting thing is today where you can take a six-year-old and get all kind of pitching instructions now. I didn't have a pitching coach till I actually got into the big leagues. Never had one in the minor leagues. I wasn't there long, but didn't have one there because they just didn't have them. And so that's uh, just gives you a... a idea of how much things have changed. Mm -hmm. You went straight from Alvin High School, 12th round draft pick. Did that? Did you feel like that was right? Did you feel like you should? Well, it's the first year of the draft, so I had, you know, you know, Alvin, Texas could have been out in the Panhandle or West Texas somewhere <laughs> because we didn't have exposure to things, you know. A big event was to go up to Colt Stadium and watch uh, Colt 45 play. And then, obviously, uh, the first year of the Dome in 65, that was a big, big deal. But, uh, uh, you know, up until 65, they didn't have the draft. So, you know, you really didn't have any expectations and had no uh, no idea what was out there talent-wise, you know, now. I looked at myself as a high school kid that was so raw. Uh, I didn't throw a lot of strikes. Uh, you know, how do I rate with kids coming out of the University of Texas or mm -hmm. any other uh, good baseball program or versus uh, a pitcher coming out of Houston out of a 4A high school in those days? That was the top high school. So I hadn't. No expectations and no barometer as far as where I fell into that. And so when I was picked that second week, the second day, um, 
didn't really know uh, what to make of it. If you hadn't been picked, what would you have done? Oh, I wanted to go to college. Uh, I wanted to go to, I tell people this, I wanted to go to Texas A&M. I wanted to be an Aggie, and Coach Tom Chandler came to me and said, Nolan, we really think you need to go to a junior college and play a couple of years there, and we'll take a look at you. And and so, you know, uh, Texas and all the other schools had offered me scholarships and and uh, but I was the last six kids, and I knew my parents weren't in a position to have another kid in, in college because two of the, my younger sisters were still in college, and so uh, I signed with the Mets. And uh, so the next year at nineteen, I was in the big leagues, and I saw Tom Chandler here in Houston at a, uh, a baseball dinner. They used to have the uh, annual sports writers dinner, and I said, "Coach, I appreciate you not letting me be an Aggie." I got the big happened. leagues at 19, you know, and uh, uh, so I've always told that story. And, and Tom, while he was living, he would just chuckle and say, yeah, that's right. Did you get a bonus to sign with the Mets? It was, but, you know, it wasn't obviously uh, on a scale that you see with kids nowadays. Uh, uh, I signed for a $20,000 bonus, and coming out of Allen, Texas, that's a lot of money, you know, it was. Uh, more money than obviously I knew what to do with the. Uh, what did you do with? Well, it? I, I I bought a mutual fund and and uh, and you know bought at eighteen you bought a mutual well, fund. Well, through some guidance of my dad, yeah. Larry Durker told me he squandered his on a on a Mustang. Well, most be <laughs> I bought a car too, you know, because uh, uh, I was driving a '56 Chevrolet, and and so, uh, uh, but. You know, I did. Uh, I did invest some. Now you didn't have Don Sanders to. to I didn't know it yet. Don Sanders existed at this time. He was still at F. Hutton, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Raising yeah. hell over there. Yeah. Um, go back a couple of years. You said you'd go up and watch the Colt Forty Fives play ball. Who was your? Who was the player you you loved? Well, you know, uh, I think that when you think about the the Colt Forty Fives, uh, I think about. Uh, Obviously, Bob. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bob Ashramani. Mm-hmm. And uh, got to be a teammate of Bob Ashramani with the Mets. So that was a, a, a thrill for me. And then I remember uh, Joe Morgan coming up, and I remember Jerry Grody coming up, who Jerry and I were teammates for four years with the Mets. Uh, and then uh, the fact that uh, they had Nellie Fox. And, you know, Nellie was a guy that I obviously, had, uh, as a youngster, had his baseball card. And so uh, it, uh, it uh, was kind of exciting to be able to go up to Coke 45 Stadium and and uh, I see him play. Coming up, the country boy from Alvin heads up to the Big Apple and makes his major league debut. What he thought facing guys whose baseball cards he had once collected. Well, it's the Michael Berry Show. (laughs) 
more with Nolan Ryan as he tells us about making his debut with the Mets in 1966. Did you enjoy school? You know, I'm dyslexic, and so school was a real challenge for me. And and um, my sisters and my brother all excelled in school. So when I got to when I uh, was in school and could play sports, my focus was on sports. Uh, and it, I think when you look back at that, you say, well, it was probably a response to the learning disability that I had. But we didn't know about that back then. No, nobody knew what it was. When did and, you figure that out? Uh, when I had children. And and my boys had the same challenges that I had. And, and we found, you know, we really dove into it and found out uh, how to handle it. And uh, so uh Diagnosing that early and, and giving them proper uh, 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 attention to it uh, made a big difference. Mm. When you were a child in school, uh, was there a historical figure that interested you, somebody that you you read a lot? For me, it was David Crockett. Oh, I think everybody was, uh, uh, at least in my era, was a big Davy Crockett fan, and, and, you know, that's, who got the attention in those days. And, and I think, uh, obviously that, uh, once, uh, you took Texas history in the seventh grade, then it, it really broadened your, uh, uh, view of, uh, the state that you lived in and, and, uh, what happened in, in Texas and the development of it. And so, uh, uh I think that's when it really started bringing the Texas pride to you. So if you go back to 18 and you're drafted by the Mets and you're off to to New York and you're going to play ball up there, did you think that your life would be in New York or did you know you'd always come home to Houston, to Texas? Well, the fact that I'd only been out of the state twice in my life prior to going to New York, uh, I was pretty overwhelmed when I got to New York as, as an 18, well, really as a 19-year-old uh, and – I looked forward to getting home, and uh, after that experience, I knew that I wasn't going to spend all seasons uh, in New York and uh, ended up uh, playing four more seasons up there. And uh, I can honestly say that uh, I never developed a comfort level for New York uh, because it, it just was a lifestyle that wasn't what I was accustomed to, and so I always looked forward to getting home. What was the biggest shock for you? Especially with Manhattan, obviously that's not where the Mets play. Oh, I think um, you know just the, the magnitude of the city and and uh, that it was somewhat overwhelming. Uh, it's a little coming, bigger now, Alvin. Coming from the background that I came from, and uh, also you know what you never been exposed to uh, that was. Obvious first time you walked into Shea Stadium is the enthusiasm of the fans and, and their uh, passion for baseball. It was obviously a, a different environment than I was accustomed to. September 11th, 1966, your first outing. What do you remember of that? Well, I remember warming up in the bullpen and I came from A-ball. And, uh, and I was going to face the Atlanta Braves and uh, – there was Henry Aaron and uh, Orlando Cepeda and uh, Eddie Matthews and Joe Torrey and 
Philippe Lou, all these guys are on that team, and those are guys I had their baseball cards. <laughs> and I'm warming up, and I have no clue whether I belong there or not, you know, because I had nothing to base it on. Uh, I went from A ball to double A for 10 days because they couldn't expand the roster until September 1st, and our season was over uh, with. 10 days left in uh, a ball and I was in low a ball. So they sent me double a and I pitched a couple of games there and then sent me the big leagues. And so I was just totally overwhelmed. I had no idea whether I, I uh, had what it took to, to uh, get anybody out. And, and it was extremely intimidating to face those guys. Uh, you know, uh, several hall of famers and, and, uh, uh, guys that, uh, like I said, you had their baseball cards, and, and you just uh, had no clue how to approach them or anything. Didn't know. All I was at that point in time was a thrower. I, was, I didn't know how to pitch. Uh, so, you know, all I did was go out there and take my God-gifted ability and try to get them out. You know, you're either the greatest pitcher of all time or one of a couple, and I, you, you never brag. I guess that's the Alvin way. It's the Nolan Ryan way. Your son's the same way. You, you're, you're, you're humble, and, and I love that. But that's who you are as a person. But did you have a confidence when you were starting that first year that I can do this? Because all I hear you say, I hear a man, a young man lacking confidence. Well, I think that when you take somebody out of the environment that they came from, which I came from, and put them into uh, a different environment, uh, I had... Uh, I can remember going down to the rookie league in Marion, Virginia, and there were college guys there. Uh, they'd been four years in college. Uh, there were kids that, that were in the same boat I was that came out of small programs. And so didn't have any idea what the talent level was, what it took to play. All I knew is to go out and do what I'd done before and see where that uh, where. It, uh, your ability fell in with the rest of those guys. And, and so it, uh, it's, it's really a, uh, a learning experience that you don't have any feel whatsoever for, for where you fall into that, uh, uh, level, uh, how you fit in. And so it, it was a learning deal. And then, for me to go to a ball the next year and then go to the big leagues, it basically was the same thing again. So, um, and I had control problems. So yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of confidence. All I, I was blessed with the ability to throw baseball and that's all I knew. And, and so it was a real learning process. And I can remember going to instructional league the first year I was in the Met system and we had a pitching coach and, and, uh, he was talking about delivery, and he might as well have been talking Chinese because I remember I was sitting there going, "What in the world is he talking about?" I had no clue. I mean, I was I was so far removed from un having an understanding of a delivery and what you had to do to uh, to be consistent, and throw strikes, and, and throw a curveball. I mean, is when it came to being raw, I was as raw as it gets. Coming up next, we'll hear about how the Vietnam War affected Nolan Ryan's second season in the big leagues. The Michael Berry Show. 
1967, Nolan Ryan debuts with the New York Mets, and this comes at a time when things really start heating up in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive would happen shortly thereafter. We continue our conversation with the Ryan Express. You remember who hit the first home run off of you? Joe Torre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember uh, throwing him a fastball in, and he had an inside-out swing and and, uh, and hitting the ball. I don't remember the count, don't remember anything else about it, but I remember the pitch. And I still, it's interesting, I can still visualize that pitch. And, uh, you know, um, it's interesting to me, you take somebody like Pete Rose, for instance, he can recall uh, at-bats and counts and all kind of things. Well, I can't do any of that, but I do remember uh, home run pitches uh, that I gave up uh, and. I don't know why that is, but it's probably because of the impact that those things have on the game. Mm. Speaking of uh, Alou, you were talking about Felipe Alou. I did the list of uh, uh, the father-sons that you struck out Mm -hmm. and the brothers that you struck out. And you got the father-son and you got three of the brothers. So there's a lot of uh, Nolan Ryan and Alou family lore going on. Yeah. I saw a lot of lose there uh, in those early years because uh, all three of them were in the National League at, at that time. And uh, uh, they were all totally different types of hitters. Uh, and uh, it was interesting. Um, but uh, they were all a challenge. Incredible family. And so uh, the first time you met Moises, I'm assuming, was here in Houston. What, what do you say the first time you greet him? Well, you know, I'd seen him earlier in Montreal, and and uh, uh, and I believe his dad was a manager at the time, and and I can remember that uh, I thought, well, now he really looks like his dad, mm-hmm. and and it didn't. I watched him play a couple of games, and I knew that uh, he was special talent, and uh, uh, but I don't really remember uh, visiting with him for the first time, you know, uh, uh, but. Uh, you know, I think of the three brothers, I think Felipe was uh, the toughest out. Mm. 1966, you start with the Mets. 1967, an interesting story that very little is written about, but I think that's one of the things I would imagine that kind of makes you who you are. It was an interesting time, the war going on and the reserves and things like that. Well, what happened was I was going to uh, Alvin Community College in the off season, and I got my draft notice. And... Uh, and was told to report uh, January 3rd. So I, I want to say this was probably early November, and I called the uh, Mets, and I said, hey, uh, I got my draft notice, and I have to report January 3rd. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. And two or three days later, they called me, and they said, you need to go to Wichita, Kansas. There's a reserve unit up there that has an opening, and they'll take you. And so I flew up to Wichita, Kansas, and stayed 10 days, and enlisted and, and uh, uh, got what I needed done. Uh, and uh, then they uh, gave me my orders to report January 3rd. So I ended up leaving January 3rd and uh, going to Fort Polk and they, uh, in Louisiana and they were full and couldn't take us. So they moved us uh, 
took us over to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and that's where I did my basic training and then went to Fort Leonard Wood. And so basically uh, I lost a whole year of 67 uh, because of that military obligation. Mm -hmm. You had to lose some of your friends from your generation. In that world. Yeah, there were uh, uh, two close friends that, that uh, died in that conflict, and uh, uh, that had a real impact on me. One of them was a teammate of mine that uh, was on my, was a senior, the same year I was, that obviously uh, was on our baseball team and went to state tournament with us. So uh, uh, that was a, a real shock in, in, uh, uh, when we got word of that. So then you go back in '68 and start pitching again for the for the Mets. Stay there till '71. How do you remember those Mets years? Oh, I look at them. If I look at the overall four years, four plus years I was there, it was frustrating because of my inconsistency. And then the other thing that a lot of people are unaware of is I was in what they call a top priority reserve unit over here in Pasadena. And so we would meet every other weekend. So I had to come back to Houston uh, every other weekend, and I'd have to fly in on Friday and go to my meetings on Saturday, Sunday, and then fly out Sunday evening. Uh, and so if my rotation fell on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I didn't get to pitch. So because of that, there was no consistency in uh, uh, in me as far as being in the rotation. And so uh, uh, I uh, I think it affected me as far as any kind of a consistency in my delivery and stuff because I was in that development stage. And if I look back at it, uh, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd been in the minor leagues or if I'd have been in the major leagues. Uh, I had that obligation, and so I was gone. And then... Also, there was a two-week summer camp that I had to leave for. And so it, it was just at that time that you had those challenges. And there were uh, three or four other players on that team that that had that same uh, uh, obligation. So what did your, your mates going through this whole process, what did they think? Because they had to know you were a professional baseball pitcher. Well, you know, they did. But uh, because I was playing in New York and I was kind of a – uh, a no-name player. They, they, I don't think that uh, uh, the guys in uh, the reserve unit probably gave much thought to it. So then you get traded to uh, the Angels, and every report says that's kind of where your career career really took off. I mean, you seen well, you start. know, it's a combination of a couple things, and one is that my military obligation uh, was over, and uh, so I I was through with the reserves. And I went to an organization that was rebuilding. And so we pitched on a, a four-day rotation, and I got to accumulate a lot of innings. And I uh, had a pitching coach that uh, really started stressing with me uh, what I needed to do in my delivery to be consistent. And, uh, and the fact that uh, Tom Morgan, the pitching coach, and uh, the innings I accumulated – I think really kind of uh, was a turning point in my career. I want to go back to the Mets. Who's the player you remember most fondly from your Mets years? Oh, it had to be Tom Seaver because of the uh, the influence he had on my career and also uh, uh, 
the fact that uh, he was at the top of his game during those years mm -hmm. and uh, was truly an impact pitcher. And, and uh, I feel very fortunate that uh, I had an opportunity to play with him for four years because uh, watching him go about his business and, and his work ethic uh, had definitely influenced me and, and my approach to my career. More coming up with Nolan Ryan as we hear how an offer from the evil empire, the Yankees, and George Steinbrenner helped bring him home to Houston to play for our Astros. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry Show is on the air. Well, our story starts in Texas, where he's tempered by the heat. This skinny Alvin boy believes his fastball can't be beat, so he brings it and he brings it, and it passes every test. I'm talking to Hall of Fame pitcher Nolan Ryan. He's the all-time leader in strikeouts and no-hitters. He's the only pitcher to have struck out seven pairs of fathers and sons. He's also the only player to have his number retired by at least three different teams, the Astros, the Rangers, and the Angels. Last segment, he mentioned that being traded to the Angels in 71 was the turning point in his career, but it was also a very frustrating time for him. Everything I read of your years in California seems to suggest you were not terribly happy until you came to Houston, that that was where you really... Is, is that a fair assessment of your eight well, years? Well, you know, um, uh, I played eight years with California and I had four no-hitters over there. And, and uh, the last year that I was there, we won the Western Division. But those uh, first six, seven years, we were a building organization that uh, was, it was very frustrating because we, you know, we were always – by July, out of the race, and probably were never, really were never in the race. But uh, uh, so you know, after you do that for year after year, you you know it. Uh, you would like to to be on a team that that wins and and has something to look for. And as far as postseason is concerned, you mentioned you're in Alvin, and it's 1965, and they build this beautiful stadium, the Astrodome. And you're getting shipped off to the Mets, and now it's 1979, and you're being brought home, the star of this team, and where all your friends and family are. What what was that moment in your career? Well, it was, it was hard for me to believe that it worked out as it did, but uh, in those days when you became a free agent, uh, the uh, when you declared free agency, they had a draft in the winter 
that, you know, in November, I guess it was, maybe it's after the World Series in October. I'm not sure how that worked. And 12 teams drafted the rights to negotiate with me, and one of them was Houston. And I told my agent, Dick Moss, I said, Dick, I want you to totally focus on Houston because one of the challenges we had was Reed had got become school age, and I really didn't think it was fair to Reed to start him in California and take him out and, and come to Alvin and then put him back in school in California. And so I thought we were going to have to make a decision. And it really made sense for us to, to uh, since we had a home in Alvin, uh, to try to sign with Houston. And what had happened is I became the first million-dollar professional player of any, any league or any uh, – whether it's NFL or NBA or, or Major League Baseball. But the way we got to that point was that after the draft, it was in New York, George Steinbrenner came to Dick Moss and said, hey, I'm interested in signing Nolan and I don't have a problem with a million dollars a year. So we knew we had somebody that was willing to pay that. And John McMullen had bought the Astros and, and sold interest here in Houston and and there was a renewed interest in the Astros. And so John wanted to uh, be active and, and uh, be uh, aggressive towards trying to put a good team. And so uh, we negotiated off George Steinbrenner's, uh, what he had, had said that he was willing to do, and it worked out that way. And it also enabled me to stay home and, and it, had a real impact on my family and on my career, and I ended up spending nine years here. Mm -hmm. I look at Brock Osweiler's case coming from Denver, a lot of pressure to be starting quarterback, and if he throws an interception or an, an incomplete pass, first thing on people's lips is how much he got paid. You were the first million-dollar athlete. Did that put pressure on you that you felt? Well, i, I tell you what happens with, with that is, is that because – you sign a contract like that, you feel like that you have to go out and prove your worth. And and I found that first year that I had a tendency to want to do that, and I finally just had to step back and say, hey, I just have to be myself. I have to pitch to my ability and not worry about that and not let that be an influence on what I try to do on the mound. And so, yeah, it... Uh, it was an adjustment that I had to make, and, and I think that uh, um, people that uh, are in those pay categories uh, have to probably have that type of feeling. They have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. I asked Larry Durker some questions about you last night, and he talked about, you know, you're the consummate Texan in so many different ways. And he said that there were times before he would pitch, he'd be warming up, and he'd, he'd be against, you know, some guy that had just come up and the team wasn't any good and they didn't have any hitters. And he said, I knew we were going to win, and I knew I was going to have a great game. And he said uh, I, he was, I guess, in the broadcast booth, and he asked you the question. He said, Nolan, you ever – Noli, he calls you. Noli, you ever have one of these situations where you know when you're warming up, we're about to win and this is going to be great? And he said, you said, not a chance. And he said, I meant it. He goes, Don Sutton was the exact opposite. Don Sutton would cut up and clown around. He said, with Noli, you knew he was 
hardcore. He was hard charging. He was going to be focused. Well, I think that's pretty accurate because that's the way I felt. You know, I, I didn't play for teams that scored a lot of runs. So I felt that, hey, I had to go out there and I had to try to shut them out. And if I didn't shut them out, if I gave up a run or two early in the game, I had to try to hold them right there to, to give us a chance to win. And that was just my mindset. And so uh, uh, it, it was a uh, – it was a focus that I had and my approach to the game. Now, you know, I never stood on the mound and, and, and felt, Hey, I got this game in the bag. Uh, and that just wasn't, that wasn't who I was. And, and it just, uh, I, I would grind until the last pitch. Your Mets years were productive, but maybe not as happy as later. Uh, Bavasi, what's the guy's name that was in California that uh, I read didn't appreciate you as much as the rest of the league? That was a Bernie Bavasi. I can't remember the guy's name, but but uh, um, I, I read reference to the fact that you weren't happy that he didn't realize what you were delivering to the team, and then you come to Houston. Oh, uh, uh, Bavasi. Bavasi. Yeah, he was a general manager, and uh, he was uh, uh, the old Dodger general manager of. Buzzy Bavasi. Buzzy. That's yeah, and uh, he, uh, uh, I don't know why, but that that was basically, <laughs> he, uh, I think when I signed with the Astros, he said, well, all I have to do is go out and buy nine, two, eight, and seven pitchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a 500 pitcher, he said. Mm-hmm. And anyway, um, you did better than 26 and 27 for the Astros, so I, I think that turned out all right. <laughs> Coming up. The fastballer comes home to play in the Astrodome. More with Nolan Ryan. Southern Pride. Southern Pride. The Michael Berry Show. Nineteen seventy nine. Nolan Ryan signs a four year, four point five million dollar free agent contract with the Houston Astros. We continue our conversation. With Nolan Ryan. Those years with the Astros, um, are those your happiest years in baseball? The, the answer is yes, just so you know. <laughs> you know, if you talk about the overall what happened, yeah, and and there's a lot of unique things about my years with the Astros is that uh, it, it was the best thing that ever happened to our family because we got to live at home. Uh, it was uh, really stabilizing for the children because they became school age and, and we were involved in the community and, and we had a real passion for the Astros. So that was a real plus. But then the other thing was that that was a nucleus of a team that stayed together the whole time I was there in that nine years. Uh, and the, that I developed some great, uh, friendships with, those players and uh, and to this day feel close to them and so that was a real plus so the overall uh, experience uh, couldn't have been better except maybe we would have won more uh, but you know being there in 80 and 86 and, and seeing how uh, the community responded to those teams was really special and feel very, very blessed that uh, you were part of that team and, and 
witnessed that because it, it, it's kind of like the Love You Blue era that sure. uh, to witness that and to have the opportunity to watch Earl and Baum and those guys, you know, it was, it was special. Pastorini asked me to tell you that in 68, he was drafted by the Mets. So he could have been on that team with you and Tom Seaver. He just wanted you to know that. He wasn't sure you knew that or not. Yeah, I'd read that somewhere. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was born in 70. So I'm, ten, I'm nine years old when the Astros bring you in. And I remember it. And I remember that 80 season. I remember that 86 season. But that 80 season for me is the one that's so special in those, those early 80s. And, and our little league team, my dad was assistant coach, and he would bring our team over. And not that you haven't heard these stories a thousand times, but a 10-year-old kid just worship. You never worship a grown man again, uh, a mere mortal, the way you do when you're 10 years old playing baseball. And he's oh, I agree. Team. I think so. You, you know. just, you, you know, I, uh, I I go back to that moment. It, it was really special. I know you just had lunch with Enos Cabell before we came here, but who was your closest friend during those years that wore the uniform with you on the Astros? Well, I think, you know, if – if I look back, I think Craig Reynolds and Terry Poole, were, and they're still very close friends of mine. Uh, you know, then it changed, you know, that uh, Billy Dorn came in and, and uh, Phil Garner came in and, and uh, Mike Scott and uh, people like that. But uh, I think Craig and, and uh, Terry, uh, when I look back, I spent more time with them mm-hmm. uh, doing things on the road and, and uh, than probably anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Durker said that uh, you were a guy that was uh, such a strong influence in the clubhouse because you were no nonsense. You were a family man. You didn't party. You weren't wild. And, and he said that was an important role that you played. Was that conscious or was that just who you were? No, it's who I was uh, and am, uh, but uh, you know that that's just that's just who I am. And and uh, but I can remember an interesting story is that uh, Al Rosen was a general manager here, and when we got Charlie Kerfelt, he came to me in spring training. He says, "Nolan, I want to ask a favor of you." I said, "What's that, Al?" And he said. I want a locker Charlie Kerfelt next to you uh, when we get back to Houston because I think you can be a, a positive influence on him. And I said, well, hey, if, if I can help Charlie and I can help the team, that's fine with me. And uh, boy, my boys were attracted to Charlie and all his antics. And I, I told Al one day, I said, hey, I said, I don't know if I'm a positive influence on uh, uh, Charlie, but he sure is an influence on my boys. <laughs> not a good one. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's good or not. But, uh, you know, uh, and Charlie and I have remained friends over that. And, and uh, you know, I'd like to think that uh, uh, that I may have influenced him in some ways, you know. I'm sure uh, you did. But uh, I always felt like that, hey, if if uh, if you can be an influence on somebody if it's a young kid looking up to you or or whatever then you want to be a positive influence mm-hmm. and so that's kind of the way I, I took it uh, you know if I could help young teammates that came in Craig Reynolds is very involved at Second Baptist man of great faith and lives it was he that kind of was that where he was in his life at that point yeah he was and I think his grandfather was a Baptist minister and always felt like that uh, 
Craig kind of felt that calling, and uh, uh, and he kind of was uh, the spiritual leader on that team. Is that right? Yeah. If you could indulge me, uh, can we go around the, the lineup? Third base, Enos Cabell, your thought? Well, Enos, <clears throat> Enos played the game hard. He wanted to win. Uh, he was a team player. He'd do anything he could to, to uh, uh, help the team. And so you really respected that. And if they moved him from third to first, whatever, you know, he was willing to do whatever he could do to help the team. Catching Alan Ashby. Alan, I'd played against in Cleveland, and uh, you know, Alan uh, was had the same mindset as that he uh, he wanted to win, and you know, the biggest challenge Alan had was catching the knuckleball because uh, uh, there's no way to, to anticipate what it's going to do, and so uh, I think that at times catching Joe Negro uh, put a lot of stress on him. I guess you remember that of the sets of brothers you struck out, the Negroes was <laughs> was one of them. <laughs> we mentioned Craig Reynolds, uh, I guess Joe Morgan at second. Well, that Joe was... Was he the, there by 80? He came 80. 80 okay. was his uh, only... Uh, that was the only year I played with Joe. He he played second and uh, uh, was the veteran of the team and had come from those. Red's team, uh, Red's so team, good. and and they brought him in uh, for his leadership and influence that he would have on that team, which I think was the right thing to do because uh, when you looked at the team, the team hadn't had much success uh, as far as postseason was concerned, and so I think they felt like that his influence would uh, really help that team as far as maturing and, and approaching. Postseason, and he was a winner. Yeah, he was. Uh, first base, I guess, would have been Bob Watson. No, he or was, was Art, gone. He was gone. Was Art on first base? Art played first, and we rotated different first basemen. But you know, it, it, the interesting thing about Art was that uh, with my Astros years, I always felt like Art Howe and Phil Garner were. Uh, manager material and I felt like they would make good major league managers and they both had successful sure. careers as managers. Now Bruce Bochy was on that team as a third string catcher and never crossed my mind that uh, Bruce would want to do that and uh, uh, and I think because he got into so few games you know I never really looked at him in that light but it's been really interesting to see how successful with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Successful he's been. At that point in your career, did you think you would one day coach? No, you know, my my mindset was I thought, well, I always believed there was life after baseball as a player. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind staying in the game, but I guess what I really thought that might interest me would be to be a general manager and obviously being a general manager today 
versus what it was back in the early 80s is a totally different job. And But I thought that <clears throat> it would be a challenge to uh, put a team together, uh, structure it with the right people and development aspect of it. Uh, and uh, I really felt like that that was something that uh, would be a challenge that I'd like to do. Coming up, Nolan Ryan hits the free agent market at the age of 41. The Michael Berry Show. For you Astros fans, I'm 46. I was 10 years old in 1980. Take yourself back to that great 80 team. Can you remember them? We continue our conversation with Nolan Ryan. Right field. We mentioned Terry Poole a little bit, but why were you so close to him? Oh, I think it was just, uh, you know, you develop friendships with people, and I think that you gravitate to people that uh, uh, you like the way they uh, live their lives and and uh, go about their daily lives. And, and uh, I think, you know, Terry uh, was pretty much a laid-back player, but he played hard. Mm-hmm. I just remember that big chaw tobacco in his in his uh in his mouth. He was one of those that just was so much fun to watch. Cesar Sedeno in center, I believe. Right. That's, I didn't have to look any of this up, but this is all from memory. Oh, from I can remember. Game. I can I, can I know re- you can, but I, I was ten. I this was recall, my hero. Yeah, man. I can recall teams. You know, Cesar was uh the most and I tell people this, when I saw Josh Hamilton in spring training the first year we had him with the Rangers People asked me about him, and I said, well, you know, I put him talent-wise with Cesar Sedano because I remember the first time I saw Cesar Sedano, I thought he was the best-looking player as far as tools was concerned mm-hmm. as I had seen early in my career, and uh, and I still put him in that light, and I put Jeff, Josh Hamilton in that light. Wow. Uh, and I... I tell people, I, I really think when I look at all the players that I had the opportunity to pitch against and watch play, I think Willie Mays was the most talented player uh, that I ever saw. And then left field, Chao, Jose Cruz. Right. And Chao was a big part of that ball club because of his personality. He played hard. Uh, he had an idea of what he wanted to do when he was uh, at bat. Uh, and he just brought a lot to that ball club. Who else was on that pitching staff? Was Nepper there yet? Uh, no. Nepper wasn't there. It was Ken Forge. Ken Forge. Uh, it was um, – Was Sambito there yet? Sambito was in the bullpen. He, he was our closer in 80. Um, J.R. was there. J.R. That was my next question. Yeah, Jr. was there. Um, Vern Rule was there. <laughs> yeah, uh, Necro was there. Okay. And Joe. so uh, I think that was pretty much the rotation. Quite a team. It really was. And you know what people don't realize is when Jr. went down with his stroke, I think he was 10-2 and two or 10-3. and three. Mm-hmm. And Vern took his spot in rotation, and I think he went ten and four, and so that talking about a pretty productive spot right there. Right. Which year, when you look back, was more special for you—the eighty or the eighty-six? 
Oh, I think the 80, uh, because we got so close to going to the World Series and, and uh, it was the first time that uh, Houston was in that position and mm-hmm. and it was so exciting to be in the Dome and see the enthusiasm of the fans, the support the fans gave us. Mm-hmm. So the 88 season is over and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'm going to quote Larry Durker. He said it really spoke to Nolan because you had such strength to be able to say, I don't feel like McMullen is, is treating me right. And he said for you to say, I'm going to go 105 degree temperatures in North Texas and the high humidity and move from my home. He said that was a really big principal thing that, that surprised a lot of people, but he admired you for it. Was that the right decision? Oh, I think it was the right decision because, you know, John McMullen was, he gave me an opportunity to pitch for nine years in Houston, and, I, and I'm very appreciative of that. But he was on a, a NBA, I mean, the MLB compensation committee, and I think he chaired it. And so he was going to try to make a statement about curbing players' salary because they offered me a contract for the 89 season, but at a 20% cut. Well, nobody had taken had a cut, and you know. And so I said, no, I'm not taking a cut. You know, I've played for nine years basically at the same salary. I haven't asked for a raise, and, you know, I think that uh, it should be continued on that basis. And so Bill Woods was the general manager, and, and John instructed him to, to do that, and so I said, "Well, I'm going to declare a free agency," and and they counted on the fact that I lived in Alvin and I've been here nine years that I wasn't going to go anywhere, and uh, so I went over to Atlanta as a free agent, and I met with San Francisco, which Al Rosen was the general manager there. I met with the Angels, and Gene Archer and I are very close friends, and I met with Gene, and I met um, with the Rangers. And then I met with Bill Woods with the Astros. So there were four teams that still showed an interest or showed an interest. And, and the Astros still thought that I think they thought they could sign me for for uh, the 20% cut. And so everybody made their offer. And, the, and Gene Autry came to me and he said, Nolan, <clears throat> look, go out and see what your best offer is. And then come back to me and I'll beat it. Because I want you to finish your career in uh, in uh, California with the Angels, and so we met with the Rangers, and because the kids were still in school and uh, we lived in Alvin, I just felt like that made sense, and I went there with a I asked for a one year contract, and they wanted uh, an option for the next year, and I said, yeah, if y'all want to bring me back and I want to uh, play one more year, I'll agree to the option. So I went there on a one-year contract with an option and I ended up staying five years because... You are already over 40 at that point. Yeah, I was 42. And a lot of things, a lot of neat things happened to me there that, you know, I, uh, uh, a lot of longevity uh, accomplishments in my career. And so I have very fond memories of my years in Arlington and... Uh, and I hated leaving Houston. I can remember getting on the plane uh, 
in Atlanta coming home. And, and I tell people it was one of the worst days of my life because I, I came to Houston to retire as an Astro, and I knew that wasn't going to happen. And I was extremely disappointed about that. That was a hard decision. But I just felt like that, hey, you know, I don't feel like I'm deserving of a, a 20% cut. And, uh, you know, if they had said, hey, we'll extend you one more year and leave your salary where it is, there wouldn't have been an issue. Coming up in the annals of sports fights, there probably isn't a more watched and talked about ass kicking than when Robin Ventura charged the mound after being hit. The Michael Berry Show. Here's Ventura, RBI single in the first. Watch out. Look at this. Robin Ventura drilled on the first pitch by Nolan Ryan, took exception to it, and decided he was just going to charge the mound. Well, the pitch was behind him. No quite. You know, Robin's been hitting that spot. That's at least the second time, and he delayed for a second. There they go. We continue our conversation with Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan. Well, you were preparing for the end, and uh, this guy named Robin Ventura charges the mound. <laughs> One of those memorable Nolan Ryan moments. Well, you you know the interesting thing about that is is that uh, it was a reaction uh, on Robin's part, but it <clears throat> there was some history there, not between Robin and I, but between the Rangers and the White Sox. We had gotten in a fight with them earlier in the year, uh, and so <clears throat> there was some bad blood there to start with, and. Uh, uh, and I was an aggressive pitcher, you know, I'd pitch inside and, and so they knew that. And, and so I just think that, uh, when Robin came up the first time, I left the ball out over the plate and he got a hit to, uh, to left field. And, and so I felt like I needed to come in on him. And <clears throat> I certainly, my intent was not to hit him. I was going to pitch him in on his hands. And if I missed, I was going to miss in and get him off the plate. But, uh, I got too far in and hit him, and he just responded. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, that that thing took on life of its own. And uh, Does that bother you? You know, <laughs> it's not what you want to be remembered for. Uh, does it bother me? No. But, you know, I felt bad about him, for him. And when uh, he got the job as the manager of the White Sox, uh, his first manager game, game managed game in the big leagues was opening day in Arlington. And I was uh, working as president at that time with the Rangers. And I think the media thought, oh, what's going to be made of this? Well, about 30 minutes before the first pitch, I went over to his, the visiting clubhouse, went into his office and congratulated him on getting that job and wished him luck. And then I, I just told him, I said, you know, Robin, I'm sorry that, this thing's taken on life of its own, uh, you know, and I certainly don't have any animosity or hard feelings, and he didn't either. I mean, well, you just, have no yeah. reason to have animosity. You left a knot on his head twenty years his senior. <laughs> He's the one that has to well, live through that. You know, it was just uh, like I say. I think it was just a reaction on his part, and, and uh, he certainly. I don't think. Uh, I think he probably wished it never happened too. You don't. I studied the film again. You hardly move. 
you prepare your, I mean, you steady yourself. Is this something you've thought through in your head a few times? This is what I'm going to do? Well, you know, I think it's just a response, you know. and uh, you'd, you'd held a steer or two in the same position, right? <laughs> yeah, and I told people, I said, I was just glad that he was a normal-sized person because prior to that, it had been Willie McCovey and Dave Winfield. Right, and, and Winfield in 80 was not a pretty picture, right? You know, and so... Uh, that's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. So, do you ever do you wish that would go away, or is it you you just understand that's part of baseball? Well, you know, it's kind of died here, you know, in the last few years, you know, and so I don't maybe in your world, it. not in mine. Yeah. When your name comes <laughs> up, people mention that moment. Well, you know, what's interesting is I can go to uh, a question and answer situation and I usually get it used to be the second or third question that came up now it may be the fifth Mm. Larry Durker said that uh, I was asking about your pitching style and how pitchers responded and and then you know was the Ventura thing you know Dave Winfield and McCovey and there were these there were these cases and he said no Noli wasn't known as a headhunter he didn't throw at you the way we could we all know who some of the guys were he said, didn't throw at you to throw at you, he said. But he was known as an enforcer. He was a consummate teammate. And if you threw at his guy, you knew the next inning you came back out and he was going to throw at yours. Is that fair? Yeah, it was. I wanted my my teammates and my hitters to know that if they needed protecting, I would protect them and that we weren't going to stand for people. And I tell the story about Norm Cash. Norm Cash was, I felt like a friend of mine, and he was from Texas, and, and Norm and I knew each other, and Billy Martin was a manager, and uh, they'd hit two or three of our guys, and so I told uh, Art Kushner, my catcher, I said, we're going to get the first guy that comes to the plate, and it happened to be Norm. And Norm knew <laughs> he could sense it coming. And, and he told Art, <laughs> he, said, he goes out, he says, Art, before after my last warm-up pitch, he goes, go out there and tell Nolan I had nothing to do with this. It was Billy. And so Art comes out there in the mound. He says, uh, Norm wants you to know that he had nothing to do with this. And he said, I said, well, tell him I'm sorry. In advance. <laughs> That's just the way it worked out. Was that part of the mindset is they got to know? Well, I, I think that, uh, one, your your teammates need to know that you'll do what you need to do to protect them. And, two, you need to send a message over there that that's not acceptable and that they're not going to get away with it. And I think by them knowing that, then it curbs that, mm-hmm. curbs a lot of it. And, you know, uh, the game's changed a lot, uh, obviously, uh, what we were accustomed to doing in those days to what it is today. And uh, uh, they're trying to protect the players uh, because they have such an investment in them. Mm. Obviously, the famous Reggie Jackson quote, he said, I loved facing Nolan and I hated facing Nolan, hitting the fastballs like eating ice cream. And I love ice cream, but I didn't want Nolan shoveling ice cream down my throat. <laughs> Uh, he's, but he also said that he's you were the only pitcher that he ever thought about putting the ear flap on his helmet. Is that a compliment? Or <laughs> well, I, I think it, he realized that uh, uh, that 
you know, being a fastball pitcher uh, and that you don't have a lot of time to react if a ball's in. And, and I think he knew I was just wild enough to get hitters' attention that uh, uh, obviously what he said, I take his compliments. And uh, um, But I also understand, I tell people this, I said, if hitters would have known what I knew, I wouldn't hit off of me. And uh, I don't think, you know, if they knew what I knew as far as my ability at times in my career to control my fastball, uh, they probably would have been a lot more hesitant to stepping in the box. Dirk, Coach Durker said that uh, he felt like with J.R., who, of course, his career was shut, cut short, he said J.R. was even wilder than Nolan. And he said people were afraid of him because he might hit you and he didn't intend to. And he said, you know, Nolan on his worst day – his control wasn't there. It, there was fear in that batter. Is that something that you, you understood and you knew was a tool? Well, I'll tell you this. I used intimidation to my advantage because there were some hitters that, you know, that was an issue with them, you know. And uh, and you knew who those guys were. And so, uh, you know, you'd pitch them in and, and early in the count and, and try to use it to your favor. If you want to hear this entire interview, Plus, a lot more that you haven't heard because we didn't have time to put it on air. Go to michaelberry.com and you can hear all of it. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.